Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Good morning. I volunteered to do the reading whilst Anna is away enjoying herself in New York. And what happens? I get the most miserable reading of the year. (laughs) It's true. It's true. (laughs) Okay. So this reading comes from the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. Keep your creator in mind while you are young. In years to come, you will be burdened with troubles and say, I don't enjoy life anymore. Someday the light of the sun and the moon and the stars will all seem dim to you. Rain clouds will remain over your head. Your body will grow feeble, your teeth will decay, and your eyesight fail. (laughs) It goes on. The noisy grinding of grain and the voices of singers will be shut out by your deaf ears. But even the song of a bird will keep you awake. You'll be afraid to climb up a hill or walk down a road. Your hair will turn as white as almond blossoms. You will feel lifeless, and this is my personal favourite, and drag along like an old grasshopper. We each go to our eternal home, and the streets here are filled with those who mourn. The silver cord snaps, the golden bowl breaks, the water pitcher is smashed, and the pulley at the well is shattered. So our bodies return to the earth, and the life-giving breath returns to God. The word of God for the people of God. <laughs> On September 5th, 1977, NASA lit a Titan III rocket at Cape Canaveral and launched the Voyager 1 space probe into orbit. It was a modest vehicle with an ambitious goal. Nine feet tall, 21 feet wide, not 60 feet from antenna tip to end, and weighing only about 1,800 pounds. It's about the size of one of those recreational golf carts you see on 30A, which likewise, I wouldn't mind launching into space as well. (laughs) Voyager's mission, this aluminum can with cameras and antennas, was to make flybys of Jupiter, Saturn, and Saturn's largest moon, Titan. Sounds simple enough. But traveling a distance of nearly 900 million miles, 
Voyager would be threatened by magnetic fields, asteroids, space junk, and engineers at the last moment fearing space radiation would be too much for this little extraterrestrial golf cart covered it with aluminum foil from the NASA kitchen. Voyager entered the Jovian moon system after a flight of 18 months, discovering 95 moons circling Jupiter. After three years of travel, finally the little space probe that could entered the moon system of Saturn. Our friend Galileo, who I referenced a couple of weeks ago, thought that he spotted two moons around Saturn with his primitive telescope in the 1600s. He was wrong. Saturn, it was found out by Voyager, has 146 distinct moons. The pictures, the analysis, the data collected by Voyager set the scientific community ablaze with giddiness. And to say the Voyager program was a success, pardon the pun, would be an astronomical understatement. But Voyager kept going. In 1990, 13 years after launch, it reached the edge of our solar system. In 1998, it became the most distant spacecraft ever launched from this planet. In 2012, Voyager freed itself from all gravitational pull of our sun and entered deep space, the absolute unknown. In 2022, Voyager pinged from the interstellar world 15 billion miles from Earth. Today, more than four decades on, Voyager is somewhere in the constellation of Ophesus. But if that little 30-volt machine can keep going, in a few years, it will reach Ursa Minor, better known as the Little Dipper. And when I say a few years, it will only take it another 40,000 years to get there. Here is the last picture Voyager 1 took. Before leaving our solar system, February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1990. This picture is entitled Pale Blue Dot. And you really have to look for it. I have circled it for you. But the pale blue dot that you see there is planet Earth, four billion miles in the distance. Chris, if you would. The laser dot is bigger than the planet Earth. And many of us, Many of us were on this little blue dot when that picture was taken. I was a college freshman. Carl Sagan said this about the photo. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, Every human being who has ever lived out their lives, the aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor, and explorer, every teacher of morals, Every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. 
There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. And that's where this impromptu series I have entitled A Tale of Two Tales has brought us. I used the word impromptu intentionally. I had no intention of sticking with this theme for the entire month of June. I wanted to speak to Genesis 1 and 2 because it was the lectionary reading on Trinity Sunday. And it was my first chance in a long time to take on the dual creation story of the Hebrew people. Dual. I challenged us to accept Not one creation account, but two tales being told, one in Genesis 1 and one in Genesis 2. And this led naturally to a more symbolic reading of our religious text over a a literal reading. That's two different tales as well. Because then we are forced to integrate science with spirituality. As Carl Jung called it, the collision of belief with knowledge. And these are two tales, two different languages speaking to one single reality. And we observed that these two languages ask and answer different questions. Slide, please. Science seeks the truth of how, when, and where. How did all this come to be? When was this world born? Where is the hard empirical evidence? Spirituality is a search for who, why, And what? Who is behind all of this? This unmoved mover, the divine, the ground of all being, God. Why are we here? Why are we sentient conscious beings so far alone in the universe on this pale blue dot? And what? What is the meaning of this life? This existence? What is the meaning of God and spirit in a universe so vast it boggles the mind and the God behind all of it has to be incomprehensible? So with so many weighty themes, I hope you will grant me the grace for having settled on the, in on these and not simply run ahead to easier, more devotional thoughts and talks. I can't help but think of JFK's speech more than 60 years ago about going to the moon if we stick with the theme just a minute more. Why, people ask, why choose to go to the moon? He says, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone. Let me take those words and apply them to our own spiritual growth. Weighty, heavy, worldview-changing, interpretive system-deconstructing challenges. These are necessary along the way of faith and spiritual growth. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Diving deep and deeper still requires the best of our energies and skills, and it is a challenge that cannot be postponed, not for people of faith in the 21st century living on this little pale blue dot. 
Not only have I relied upon Genesis, but I have turned to the wisdom literature of the Hebrew people this month, the Psalms, the prophets. Last week, the book of Ecclesiastes, and to that book, I apparently hysterically return to today. It's the last chapter of that book, and it's really a good summary of the writer's conclusions about life, life's meaning, and what we should be doing with our lives while today is still called today. Now, the words of a manic depressive, as the writer of Ecclesiastes is, can be somewhat dramatic, but that makes them no less true. One thing about the manic depressive, for that emotionally charged personality, for the Myers-Briggs folks in the crowd, the INFP personality, the four on the Enneagram, if you prefer, they have felt it all, all of it, highs, lows, elation, melancholy, from that wealth of emotional analysis and experience they speak. And what does the writer of Ecclesiastes say at the end of his book, at the end of his experience, yea, at the very end of his life? Well, he says, you live on a pale blue dot, and the life you live is only a dot. It's not even a dash. It's a blip. You live for an infinitely short amount of time, and you get this one shot at it before you, your matter, your energy, your body becomes absorbed into that pale blue dot. You will become decaying carbon and nitrogen. You will surrender all of your hydrogen and oxygen. The Book of Common Prayer has been saying it like this for centuries, words that I use at almost every committal of ashes or burial of the dead in some form. It goes like this, ensure in certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life, we commit the body of this one we have loved and love still to the earth from which it came, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Again, a little boy hearing this one Sunday at church. Promptly found a dust ball under his bed. He ran to his mother and he said, there's someone living under my bed, but I don't know whether they're coming or going. We're all going. We are all subject to the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy. Our energy, our life source is all winding down. Ecclesiastes The celestial lights grow dimmer. Clouds roll in to stay. Your body fails. Your teeth drop out. You can't hear thunder, but the slightest sound will wake you up in the middle of the night. You lose your nerve. You lose your balance. You lose your hair. You lose your spunk. I mean, aging is not for cowards, is it? But the heartbreaking beauty of the poetry there near the end The silver cord snaps. The golden bowl breaks. The water pitcher is smashed. The pulley at the well is shattered. And so our bodies return to the earth. This is tough for some of you to hear. It's really tough for some of you to think about. But you are going to die. And Doug is right. That is not a subject our culture likes to spend any time on. We spend billions and billions of dollars in this country 
trying to look younger, trying to keep death away, running away from death, and it creates so much unnecessary anxiety if we would simply accept the fact that no one has ever escaped this planet alive. No matter how good you might feel today, no matter how young you are, no matter how invincible you think that you are, at some point you are going to have to imagine that pale blue dot without you on it. And that's hard. And when we pass, if I can return to the book of Common Prayer and that last word from the writer of Ecclesiastes, we commit the body of this one we have loved and loved still to the earth from which it came, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And then I always say, and we commend his soul to Almighty God from whence it came, life to everlasting life and spirit to spirit. Verse 7 of Ecclesiastes Again, our bodies return to the earth, and the life-giving breath returns to God. As an aside, this is an important truth that both science and faith agree upon, by the way. There is really no such thing as physical death. When this life is over, nothing is over. Your matter, your energy, your physical being goes on. No energy, no force of life ever escapes this universe. It is only transferred somewhere else. Scripture has taught us that for centuries, and Einstein has confirmed it. It's all I can do not to make that the next sermon in this series. I will restrain myself. The point here is brevity, and it's corollary. As the earth is so tiny in the scheme of this magnificent universe, so short is the life you have to live in the great scope of time and history. If I might bring in a paragraph from the Apostle James, again, with no knowledge of outer space, no understanding whatsoever of the age of the earth or the length of human history, he still understood how quickly life passes He asked, what do you know about tomorrow? How can you be so sure about your life? It is nothing more than a mist that appears for only a little while before it disappears. I've quoted my own grandfather numerous times, sitting with him in his last Christmas before he would die in the spring. And he was talking to me me about how quickly his life had passed. And he said, Ronnie, it took me longer to get to 18 than it did to get from 18 to 80. And I was 22, 23 when he said that. And I thought, my, my years are double that number now, and that man was telling the truth to me. So what? What are you going to do with this one solitary, impossibly short life that you have been given? The writer of Ecclesiastes says, you better get after it while the getting is good because the getting's going to get gone. He didn't say it exactly like that. Frederick Beekner from last week, what, we must be careful with our lives for Christ's sake because it would seem that they are the only lives we are going to have in this puzzling and perilous world. And so they are very precious and what we do with them matters enormously. We need to be told this. 
Because there is always the temptation to believe that we have all the time in the world, whereas the truth is we do not. For each of us, there comes a point of no return, a point beyond which we no longer have life enough left to go back and start over. So if you're going to live, then get busy living. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. No, you don't have to be a world adventurer. You don't have to go globetrotting the sphere or take an Amazon River excursion every year. I don't know. You know, you don't have to take ill-advised submarine rides to the bottom of the sea. We don't have the means, most of us, to lead that kind of lifestyle. Most of us really don't want that kind of lifestyle. Besides, there are bills to pay. There are children to raise and when you're older, to stay in relatively close contact with, and grandchildren to stay really close to. There is rhythm and comfort in the routine of normal life and steady relationships. But are you giving yourself even to that? Are you present and engaged with the life that you have? Or are you simply letting life happen to you? Hours scrolling on social media is not life. Working so hard and so long that you have neither time nor energy for those who truly love you is not life. Piling up stacks of dollars for later that you can use to be comfortable eventually isn't life. And I'll say it plainly, bitching about everything that is wrong with your daughter-in-law or the president or the length of the light signal at the intersection of 30A and 330 or whatever, that's not life. Running about trying to manage and control everyone else's affairs isn't life. Commenting on every single activity, happening, occurrence, or announcement, that is not life. Staying in a job that is killing you is not life. Maintaining relationships that are toxic is not life. Drinking or medicating yourself into oblivion every night, that is not life. Having the cleanest house, the most manicured lawn, the most accolades on the wall, none of these are life. Good food is life. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes said last week. Good drink is life. And as I said, some have better drinks than others. Find those people. Having someone to share good food and good drink and good times with is life. Work that you find rewarding and meaningful, that's life. Falling in love is life. Even getting your heart broken because of love is a life. Getting married, getting divorced, having a baby, losing a child, buying a house. For all the moans last week, rescuing a dog, having beers with friends, a day on the water, an afternoon at the pool, late night story sessions with so much laughter your face hurts the next day. Tears and tales at the memorial of a dear friend or your very own soulmate. Morning coffee with your granddaughter. An afternoon nap with your cat. This is life. It can be. If you give yourself to it. If you are all in. If you are present. 
in that moment of life, instead of striving for something other, instead of wishing you were somewhere else, instead of brooding over how life hasn't gone the way that you had hoped it had, life doesn't go the way anybody hopes it has. That's life. And yes, life is even in the pain and the loss. Because taken all together, and it takes a while of living to get this lesson, the serendipities and the disappointments, the victories and the tragedies, the joys and the grieving, the successes and the setbacks, all that we gain and all that we lose. We gain this awareness, this urgency for the present moment. We gain after a few years of living an understanding that life being short might actually be the point. It sharpens our attention span because life is this misty, vapor-like brevity and it forces us to give all we have to our few days and wring out from them everything that we can get from them. To quote Thoreau, I wish to live deliberately and not when I come to die discover that I had not actually lived. I want to live deep and suck out the marrow of life. Instead of avoiding or resisting or refusing to believe the shortness of life and the inevitability of our own deaths, we should embrace it. We might live more deliberately, more passionately, more lovingly if we understood how short the time is that we have. And we sure wouldn't waste our time on things that don't matter because there is no time to waste. How do you do this? I like... How spiritual teacher Ram Dass born Richard Albert said it. He said it like this. Be here now. It's the same intent of Jesus when he said, take no thought for tomorrow. Be. Be yourself. A worthy goal for any human being. Learn who you are. And who and how God has made you and be that person. You might as well. Nobody else can do that for you. B, be here, right here, right where you live, right in the midst of snotty kids or aging parents or stacks of bills or that afternoon of perfect sunshine and no rain, right here where you are and nowhere else because you can't be in two places at once. You might as well as enjoy the life you have here. Give yourself completely to the place your feet are standing on. And now, today, This moment, because all moments are this one moment, because there may not be tomorrow and yesterday is gone forever. Now, life is too short to delay or to postpone. Be here now. Small as you are in this world, a passenger on this tiniest of planets in the greatest of universes, yet God has given you a life to live. For God's sakes, don't waste it. Seize more opportunity. See more sunrises and sunsets. Explore more places. Stay curious and less judgmental. Love more deeply those that are in your life. Share your blessings more often. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Laugh longer. Complain less. Be here now. For sooner, not later... The silver cord will snap. The golden bowl 
will break. The water pitcher will be smashed and the pulley at the well will be shattered and our bodies will return to the earth and the life-giving breath will return to God. 